Reading from Jonah chapter 1, beginning at verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. And he said, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. Your waves, your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sights, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head as the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and I, my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up on the dry land. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Why are we looking at Jonah? For skeptics, Jonah is a laughable story. I remember before my conversion, when I was yet an atheist, I loved nothing more than singing these words from Gershwin. It ain't necessarily so. It ain't necessarily so. Them things that you're liable to read in that Bible, they necessarily so. The culmination in Jonah, he lived in a whale. Jonah, he lived in a whale. He made his home in that fish's abdomen. Jonah, he lived in a whale. I love nothing more than singing that to my Christian friends. And then I became a Christian. And I, I said, what do I do now with these kind of stories, these Jonah stories in Scripture, right? Whether it's, a, you know, Balaam's talking donkey or Jonah three days, three nights in a whale, as verse 17 shows us, Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. What are we to do with these kinds of stories? Well, some would say that the story is simply a parable, right? It's, it, it didn't really happen. It's just a parable. Others would say it's a puzzle to be solved. And I read one of those puzzle versions this week. Somebody said, you know, what if Jonah lived three days, three nights by the sea in an inn called the fish? <laughs> but the difficulty we have is that the text itself does not support either a reading of this as a parable, nor does it support the reading of it is some kind of puzzle. We're stuck with this story, this miraculous story 
that reads like a narrative. This is reading like prophetic history. I remember I was a guest lecturer at Ottawa University a number of years ago, and I was in front of a very hostile auditorium full of about fourth year, third or fourth year uh, university students, college students. And I was presenting the claims of Christianity. I was the alternative voice that got to came in and say, you know, there actually is validity behind this. And one of the questions that came up was around miracles, mighty deeds, supernatural events recorded in scripture. And this one person said in the Q&A session, well, obviously as a thinking, rational person, you can't believe those aspects of the Bible. And my response was, if we believe that Easter happened, then Easter has to reshape our entire view of what is possible. If Easter morning actually happened, if a man was raised from the dead, then all of a sudden our presumptions around what can and can't happen must be changed. This false dichotomy of measuring science against faith as if they're enemies. They're not enemies, they're friends. The question is, what is our starting position? As C.S. Lewis in his book, Miracles, writes, he says, in science, we have been reading only the notes to the poem. In Christianity, we find the poem itself. In science, we've only been reading the notes to a poem. In Christianity, we find the poem itself. Why are we looking at Jonah? Because, as I said last week, like Jonah, the Lord is calling us into mission. Back in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, we read these words, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, arise, Go to Nineveh. We're all called on mission. Our Ninevehs may be very different places and very different people and very different calls, but the call is universal. There is no such thing as a person who comes to follow Jesus who is not called into mission. What is your Nineveh? We have uh, within the bulletin today even put a little card that says, My Jonah Moments. And this is an opportunity to move this discussion from the hypothetical to the practical. The Lord calls each of us to serve his people in his mission. Who or what is the Lord calling you to at Christ Church? It gives a blank, it gives room for checking boxes. You can fill it out, put it in the plate, give it to a clergy person, take it to the welcome desk. But this is the beginning of a further conversation. How is the Lord calling you? Where is your Nineveh? We're studying Jonah because like Jonah, the Lord is calling us into mission. Last week, we looked at the missionaries' unfaithfulness. By looking at Jonah's unfaithfulness, we saw that the Lord can still get his mission done. He's still relentless in his call, even in our limited and even horribly failing response to the Lord's call. He gets the mission accomplished. But if we looked at the missionaries' unfaithfulness last week, this week we get to look at the missionaries' 
fear? What does the missionary fear? What am I truly afraid of in mission? What am I truly afraid of in saying yes to the Lord's calling? And it's this. Jonah chapter 2 tells us this is what we're afraid of. We're afraid of saying yes to the Lord's call into mission because it might just destroy us. What we're afraid of is the mission might just destroy us. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Jonah, it says, prayed to the Lord his God from where? The belly of the fish. But then what does he pray? He says in verse 1, out of the belly of Sheol I cried. I thought he was in the belly of the whale. Now Jonah says he's in the belly of Sheol. Sheol is the Hebrew place of the dead. Jonah is saying that being in the belly of the whale is the equivalent of being dead. Though we may think at first that the fish has come along to rescue Jonah from drowning in the deep, Jonah's understanding of being in the belly of the fish is that he is in the place of the dead. This is the destruction of his life. Life is done. He is dead in this place. And isn't this part of what made him run from the Lord in the first place? Isn't this part of why he ran from the Lord? We're going to find out in a couple weeks in chapter 4 that part of the reason Jonah ran from his call is he really didn't like the Ninevites and he didn't want God's mercy to be shown to them. But there's a whole other aspect of why Jonah ran. Jonah ran from his call because he was terrified. Jonah ran from his call because he was worried that something like this would happen. I'm going to say yes to the Lord's call and I'm going to end up in the belly of a fish. I'm going to end up in the belly of Sheol. This call will destroy me. And for us, it's the same. We may not be fearing death itself, at least at this moment, in our call to mission, but we do fear the destruction that could come into our lives if we actually said yes to the Lord's call. What is gonna have to change in my life? What will be destroyed? What could the Lord take from me if I say yes to this call? Jonah's story shows us a picture of the Lord and how he meets Jonah in his greatest fear. You see, in this story, we see the Lord meet Jonah in the context of his bottom of the sea, belly of the fish, in Sheol, in hell moments. And here's what we see. That the Lord owns the fish. If the fish is Hades, if the fish is the worst possible outcome, the Lord owns the fish. But not only does he own the fish, the Lord owns orchestrates the fish. He guides the fish. And not only does the Lord own the fish, not only does the Lord orchestrate the fish, but the Lord overcomes the fish. First, the Lord owns the fish. The Lord owns the fish. Verse 17 reads, literally, and the Lord numbered or counted a great fish to swallow up Jonah. That language of numbered or counted can be interpreted two different ways. You can read that as the Lord provided the fish, as in he owned the fish, he created the fish, or you could interpret it that the Lord is appointing, guiding, governing the fish. And we'll look at both versions. First, 
The Lord numbered the fish. He provided the fish. It implies that he created the fish. He owns the fish. You see, the sea, for the Hebrew mindset, is a source of evil and chaos. The sea is a dangerous place. There are sea monsters in the sea. There are sea storms in the sea. The ships go down in the sea. For a Hebrew mind, the sea is a place of evil and chaos. This is why in Revelation chapter 21, we sometimes end up confusing folks a little bit at the reading at a funeral. We often read Revelation chapter 21 verse 1, and folks can give me that look of confusion when we read these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I've had this many times where I've been at a funeral, I've read those words, and as I say, the sea was no more. People in the front row, their eyes get big, and they think, oh my goodness, I just wrote in the obituary that grandpa is fishing with Jesus now, but the priest just said there's no more sea. What do we do with this? And it's a metaphor for evil and chaos being put away. I believe that there is still going to be water bodies in heaven. But the point is it's a metaphor to say evil and chaos in the new heavens and the new earth has been put away. The sea is a place of evil. Look at verse 3 of Jonah's prayer in chapter 2. He said, all your waves and your billows passed over me. Jonah is saying the Lord owns the sea. He owns the sea. He owns all that's within it. All the monsters in it. I mean, this is what Jonah said back in chapter 1 to the sailors. Verse 9, he says, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. What's my point? The point is this. As counterintuitive as it may feel, it is enormously comforting knowing that the Lord owns the things that we are afraid of. Though it is counterintuitive, it is extremely comforting to know that the Lord owns the things that scare us. Because it means that we are not living in the midst of a cosmic war between our God and other great beings that are coming at him and wondering, will our God prevail? You see, in the ancient Near Eastern world, when they often would tell their creation stories, their version, you think of the Epic of Gilgamesh or others from the Canaanites and the Mesopotamians, they would tell their stories of their God who came on the scene into a partially created universe and they would have to wrestle and fight and war with the sea monsters. The first job of any deity was to come and war with the sea monsters and if they overcame the sea monsters, then they could establish that they are now the God of this particular region on the earth. Genesis 1 says something shocking about all that we're afraid of, all that terrifies us if we have this Hebrew mindset. Genesis 1 verse 21 says these words, so God created this great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. In other words, Genesis 1 in our creation count says that God made the sea monsters. God made the sea. God made even the things that we're afraid of. And therefore, if he owns them, he's over them. I love in Psalm 104, we read these words 
about a name that is given for one of these sea creatures, perhaps the exact creature that devoured Jonah. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. Psalm 104 gives the name to these sea monsters, calls one of them Leviathan, this great monster of the sea. God created Leviathan. God made the sea. God owns those things which scare us. As many of you know, we named our mini schnauzer Leviathan. This is now a tradition for us. Our first dog's full name is Tiglath-Pileser III, affectionately known as Tiggy. Tiglath-Pileser III was the king of Assyria that destroyed Israel. So we have a tendency in our house to want to name our beasts after both a tyrannical, evil overlord and a great sea monster as evidence that God has dominion over even the things that scare us. This is in line a little bit with a comment that R.T. or T.R. Glover made a number of years ago. As our tradition holds that Nero was the one who put St. Paul to death, and Glover says this, he says, little did Nero know that a day was to come when people will call their sons Paul and their dogs Nero. It is actually comforting to know that God made and owns the fish. It is actually comforting to know that in our struggles, in the things that we fear, these are not a contest between God and those things. God is sovereign. God is over these things. God even owns the monsters. Even the monster known as death. It's owned by God. But not only does God own the fish, the Lord also orchestrates the fish. You see, verse 17 again, the second meaning, not just a meaning that says God provides the fish, but he also arranged for a fish. He orchestrated the fish. He guided the fish. He told the fish what to do. Jonah says in verse 3, these shocking words. He's praying, and he says to God, you cast me into the sea. He doesn't say the sailors cast him into the sea. He doesn't say, you know, the mighty forces of evil. He doesn't say, Satan cast me into the sea. He says, you, O Lord, cast me into the sea. The Lord is behind this. And he uses this terrible moment to transform Jonah. Note that this is the first time in the book that Jonah prays. Back in chapter 1, verse 6, the pagan sea captain asked Jonah, get up, you sleeper, pray to your God, and Jonah doesn't pray. Only now, in the belly of the fish, only now, at the end, does he pray. God is using this horrible moment, this horrible fish, this horrible monster of death to transform Jonah into a man of prayer. 
We struggle, I know we struggle with the concept of God orchestrating our pain. We struggle with the concept of God's sovereignty in the face of pain and and destruction. We have a hard time holding to that. A number of years ago, I was teaching at a retreat weekend and I was talking about pain and where God is in the midst of our pain. And during the Q&A session, one of the people put their hand up and kind of dismissed everything I'd been saying about how God meets us in our pain by saying, well, clearly, and I'd been talking about our, our seven-year-old at the time, our, our, well, she was seven at the time, but our second oldest who had been chronically ill for seven years in and out of children's hospitals. And I've been sharing about God meeting us in our pain. And this person sort of dismissed it all by saying, well, clearly with your daughter going through all this, this is just a Romans 8.28 moment. And by which she meant, God causes all things to work together for the good, for those who love God, who are called according to his purposes. And normally I just let it go, but I couldn't. And I said, what do you think that verse really means? Because I said, oftentimes when we hear this, we hear that God causes all things to work together for the good. We think the good is, oh, well, God is either going to fix it, right, exactly how we want it, or that we're going to look back a few years down the road and say, what I thought was horrible actually was amazing. But what if the prayer isn't answered exactly the way we'd like to see it? What if she gets worse? What if she dies in this? Are you then going to send me a Hallmark card that simply says, well, clearly God wanted one more angel in heaven? Don't give Hallmark sentiments for something that is profound and requires the whole gospel to respond to. I said, no, the good. You cannot understand Romans 8.28 until you read Romans 8.29. What is the good? God causes all things, everything, even the pain, even the destruction, even death itself. God causes all things, yes, I believe all things, to work together for the good, for those who love God, who are called according to his purposes. Verse 29, for those who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good. The good, what God is going to do with your pain, is he's going to use it to make you look more like Jesus. More like Christ, who Isaiah 52 says was disfigured beyond comprehension, who suffered, who was crucified. Sometimes the good that God will bring about in our lives through our pain is that we'll be more like Jesus, that we may know his sufferings. As C.S. Lewis once wrote, Again, two C.S. Lewis quotes in one sermon. It's, you know, twice the admission price. Pain, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Like the prodigal son Jonah must come to the very end of himself before he's able to hear from God. God not only owns the fish, God orchestrates the fish. But finally, and here's the gospel, God overcomes the fish. Look at verse 10 of chapter 2. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out on dry land. 
In other words, Jonah gave the fish indigestion. And if the fish represents Sheol and death, Jonah gave death indigestion. Death could not hold Jonah. Jonah had to be vomited out. Why? Because of how great Jonah was? No, Jonah's an absolute failure. Because of how moral and how well he learned to pray, he only learns to pray right at the end. No, it has nothing to do with Jonah's own faithfulness. Why can death not hold Jonah? Because something greater than Jonah is here. There's more that is in this story than meets the eye. This story, like the whole Bible, is not really about Jonah. The whole of Scripture points to Jesus. And Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 12, as I quoted last week, and I will quote every week of this series, Jesus identifies his ministry with this prophet Jonah. And he says this, he says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. See, Jonah is in this moment prophesying, pointing to Easter. Jonah in the belly of the fish is pointing to the resurrection. When in a moment from now we will say the creed, and we say on the third day he rose again according to scripture, according to what scripture? What prophecy did Jesus fulfill on Easter morning? No other prophecy than Jonah chapter two. Jonah in the belly of the fish. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. See, Jonah is, as always, prefiguring Jesus. Imperfect as he is, Jonah is a sign pointing to Jesus. He's looking like Jesus. He's acting like Jesus. Jonah in the fish is Jesus in hell. Jonah in the fish is Jesus in the place of death. And we see the similarities all over the place. Look at verse 4. Then I said, Jonah's words, I am driven away from your sight, O Lord. Does that not sound like Matthew 27, verse 46? As Jesus is bearing your sins and mine on the cross, crying out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jonah is prefiguring Jesus. And he prefigures Jesus in showing that death will be overcome. And here's how the Lord overcomes. Do you want to know what makes death vomit? I mean, that, that could be on Twitter. Do you want to know what makes death vomit? The last word that Jonah speaks. Are you ready for the gospel? The last word that Jonah speaks is verse 9 of chapter 2. Just before the whale, the fish, vomits him up, Jonah says one last thing. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And we go, great, it's a salvation moment. But here's what he says in Hebrew. He says, Yeshua la Adonai. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Yeshua 
la'adonai. And if you hear that word in there, Yeshua, it's because that's the name, that's the word salvation. Yeshua, it's the word Joshua. And when we bring it into the New Testament, as we often forget, Joshua is the same name as Jesus. Matthew chapter one, the angel says to Joseph, you shall call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. Yeshua, it means God saves. Jesus' own name means God saves. Jonah the prophet, do you hear this? Jonah the prophet, who is predicting the resurrection, who is pointing to the resurrection, the last word he speaks in the belly of the fish is the word Yeshua. He says Jesus in death and death must vomit him up because death cannot withstand the name of Jesus. This week we had a funeral. As many of you know, we buried Dick Jessen. And I told the story of the funeral, but I'll tell it again. That on Thursday afternoon, when the hospice worker said that it was near the end, Father Stephen Saul was able to pray last rites with Dick and the family there. And as Father Stephen prayed those words of those final prayers, normally it often happens when people are not really at that point receiving or hearing much. And yet in that last right moment, Every one of those prayers, Dick himself said, Amen. In the face of death, in the face of the worst enemy, the worst monster that can come at us, we can have confidence, we can have faith, we can have strength, we can face down our fears. Because Jonah has shown us, you call out the name of Jesus in the face of death. And death will vomit you out. Because as Peter says in Acts 2, it was impossible for death to keep a hold on Jesus. Some people have fish symbols on their cars. I don't, because I don't drive nicely enough to have a fish on my car. (laughs) But do you know where that fish symbol came from? In the context of mission, in the context of what we fear, Then the first and second century, when the church was being hunted down by the Romans, when on mission they were facing down death every day, as a Christian would meet another Christian and and wonder, maybe, are you a Christian, are you not a Christian? And they didn't know, maybe they'd be spies from the Romans. They would take their foot in the dirt and write a little squiggle as they were chatting. And if the other knew the symbol and was truly a Christian, the other Christian would complete the squiggle and it would form a fish. It was the symbol of the church. It was the symbol of the church under persecution, the church facing death every day. Why did they pick the fish as the Christian symbol? Because they remembered what we so quickly forget, that the story of Jonah in the belly of the fish is the picture from the Old Testament pointing to the resurrection. Jonah in the belly of the fish, Jonah in Sheol, is the prophecy that Jesus completed. The fish is the symbol of resurrection. The fish is the symbol of our salvation. The fish puts away every fear that could come at us. So why are we looking at Jonah? Because we, like Jonah, are called on mission and we, like Jonah, are full of fear. 
I began with an atheistic song. I should end on a different note. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of woe will not thee overflow, for I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I never, no, never, no, never forsake. What then shall we fear if even in death, even in death, something greater than Jonah is here? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.